welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's technically Monday, December 2nd, 2019. This will be played on December 6th, 2019. I'm feeling not the most clear-headed this afternoon. So what I will be doing is playing another podcast that I was listening to recently and learned a lot from. And I feel growing up in this country, there's certain information that one is not privy to that they specifically do not teach us or teach us the opposite of in some ways. And I will let the host of this podcast uh, explain a little bit more. It's part of a series, part three in a series, and it's from the podcast called Trafe. And you can find that by typing in T-R-E-Y-F. It's a Jewish anarchist podcast out of Montreal. And they interviewed a couple folks. And as I've always said here on the show that when there are other folks voices being heard it's there's just so much more to learn and understand so i will be directly playing this other podcast for the first hour or so and then i will come back in play a little bit more music open up with santana and perhaps talk about a few other events that are coming up i know the howards and book fair is coming up at city college on valencia on sunday december 8th it's a really great event lots of awesome books for sale and there are workshops and folks who are speaking. So I highly recommend checking that out if you're able. So yeah, let me stop talking and go right into this podcast. This is the, again, the Trafe podcast episode 45 fascism and the far right. And we'll be back after this. For the last couple months, we've been following a certain trajectory. Have we not? Yes. So this episode is part of our series of episodes exploring the history and unfortunate present realities of fascism and far-right movements. And on this episode, we're going to look at how colonialism relates to fascism. Yeah, we, we wanted to explore an aspect of fascism that a lot of people write about as colonialism turned inward, where essentially the society that's carrying out colonialism around the world has that violence filtered back into the host society. Yeah, and so we chatted with two academics who cover kind of different facets of this phenomenon. The first was Christian Davis, who is a professor and wrote a book called Colonialism, Antisemitism, and Germans of Jewish Descent in Imperial Germany. Yeah, we talked with Christian about Germany's colonial invasion of Africa and specifically its genocide in Namibia and the ways that this contributed to the rise of the Nazis and eventually the Holocaust. And... For our second interview, we chatted with Roland Kashina Robinson, who's also known as Anamaki. He runs the Anguahone Rising blog, and he's the author of the essay, Fascism and Antifascism, A Decolonial Perspective. Yeah, we want to talk to Roland to get a better idea of how to understand fascism here, where settler colonialism and genocide is so much part of the fabric of the society, and also what the threat of growing far-right politics means for indigenous people. And so to jump straight into these interviews, this is your episode of Trafe for the 2nd of Kislev, 5780. <laughs>
Modern European and World History at James Madison University in Virginia. I've been teaching at JMU for about nine years, and I'm very much interested in issues of anti-Semitism, race relations, uh, racial prejudice, and also colonialism. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, we wanted to talk to you about your book, uh, but before we get into the book, you know, this is just such a specific area of study, um, and I was curious how uh -huh. you uh, first came into it. Well, it really dates back to my days as a graduate student when I was at Rutgers University. I became quite interested in the question of the origins of anti-Semitism and racial prejudice in modern Europe, and also I became interested in the stories of European colonial expansion, the creation of racial states abroad in German Africa and other parts of the world. And the question that I asked myself was whether or not these two historical developments were interrelated. And so that became the basis of the study, which then I expanded in later years into the book. And before we go any further here, can you give our listeners a sense, maybe a short sense, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. of the story of German colonialism in Africa? Because I think it's one that maybe takes a backseat to French... British, or even Portuguese and Spanish? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think probably a lot of people don't even know that Germany did have a very large colonial empire, and it was one of the major colonizing powers during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So Germany, in fact, acquired and governed what became the fourth largest colonial empire in the world, only behind the British, the French, and the Dutch. But one of the reasons why most people are probably not aware that Germany was such a large power is because their empire only lasted from about 1884 to 1919, when Germany was stripped of its overseas colonial possessions as a result of losing the First World War. But Germany did, for a short period of time, about 34 years, acquire a large colonial empire. And it was an empire that was actually quite diverse. Uh, the Germans acquired a small territory on the coast of China. Uh, they came to control part of New Guinea and Samoa and islands in the South Pacific near Australia. But the overwhelming bulk of the German overseas empire was actually located in Africa, in four large African colonies, which at the time were known as German East Africa, German Southwest Africa, Togo, and Cameroon. And this colonial empire altogether encompassed a landmass that was actually much larger than the territory of Germany back in Europe. In fact, uh, the large and colonies, German East Africa, was itself larger than Germany back in Europe. And it uh, governed millions of non-Germans, Africans in particular. And, you know, all this invasion and, and conquest had a large human cost uh, on the part of the indigenous populations, including the Herero and Nama genocide uh, that the Germans carried out in 1904 in, in Namibia. You know, for listeners who haven't heard of this before, can you maybe give people a bit of an understanding of what occurred? Sure, sure. The Germans were extremely brutal colonial masters. And you had a number of large uprisings really as a reaction to German brutality. And the most famous uprising, and the one which resulted in the first genocide of the 20th century, occurred in German Southwest Africa. German Southwest Africa was a very large colony. It had a significant indigenous population, probably about 200,000 people when the Germans arrived in the 1880s. The two major groups were the Herero and the Nama. 
And the German colonial authorities pursued the deliberate policy of impoverishing the indigenous inhabitants. The policy was really designed to strip the Herero and the Nama both of their land and of their possessions and of their cattle in particular, in order to impoverish the people so that they would be dependent for their livelihoods upon selling their labor services to the German state and to the German white settlers in German Southwest Africa. I'm and Sam. this had a really devastating effect and this on is the Herero people. And so by 1904... And taking a bit of a break here, I have some technical issues that we are looking to work out so just one moment here and this hopefully should resolve the issue thanks again for tuning in you are listening to mutiny radio you can find us at mutinyradio.fm and we also have shows here spaces available for rental if you'd like to do a show here of your own you rent uh, the space you get two hours a week to do any type of show you'd like so wanting to share that with you all okay so it looks like we have hopefully this should uh, fix the issue. I'm going back into the Trave podcast. And so, yeah, stay tuned. Get that up and running in no time. Thanks again for tuning in. If you'd like to listen to other shows here at the station, please do check out mutinyradio.fm. Lots of good things happening here. All right, let's see. Let's give this one a try and see how this works out. And I'm very much interested in issues of anti-Semitism, race relations, uh, racial prejudice, and also colonialism. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, We wanted to talk to you about your book. uh, But before we get into the book, you know, this is just such a specific area of study. um, And I was curious how Uh you uh, first came into it. Well, it really dates back to my days as a graduate student when I was at Rutgers University. I became quite interested in the question of the origins of anti-Semitism and racial prejudice in modern Europe. And also, I became interested in the stories of European colonial expansion, the creation of racial states abroad in German Africa and other parts of the world. And the question that I asked myself was whether or not these two historical developments were interrelated. And so that became the basis of the study, which then I expanded in later years into the book. And before we go any further here, can you give our listeners a sense, maybe a short sense, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, of the story of German colonialism in Africa? Because I think it's one that maybe takes a backseat to French, British, or even Portuguese and Spanish. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think probably a lot of people don't even know that Germany did have a very large colonial empire, and it was one of the major colonizing powers during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So Germany, in fact, acquired and governed what became the fourth largest colonial empire in the world, only behind the British, the French, and the Dutch. But one of the reasons why most people are probably not aware that Germany was such a large power is because their empire only lasted from about 1884 to 1919, when Germany was stripped of its overseas colonial possessions as a result of losing the First World War. But Germany did, for a short period of time, about 34 years, acquire a large colonial empire. And it was an empire that was actually quite diverse. Uh, The Germans acquired a small territory on the coast of China. 
they came to control part of New Guinea and Samoa and islands in the South Pacific near Australia. But the overwhelming bulk of the German overseas empire was actually located in Africa, in four large African colonies, which at the time were known as German East Africa, German Southwest Africa, Togo, and Cameroon. And this colonial empire altogether encompassed a landmass that was actually much larger than the territory of Germany back in Europe. In fact, uh, the largest of the German African colonies, German East Africa, was itself larger than Germany back in Europe. And it uh, governed millions of non-Germans, Africans in particular. And, you know, all this invasion and, and conquest had a large human cost uh, on the part of the indigenous populations, including the Herero and Nama genocide uh, that the Germans carried out in 1904 in, in Namibia. You know, for listeners who haven't heard of this before, can you maybe give people a bit of an understanding of what occurred? Sure, sure. The Germans were extremely brutal colonial masters. And you had a number of large uprisings really as a reaction to German brutality. And the most famous uprising, and the one which resulted in the first genocide of the 20th century, occurred in German Southwest Africa. German Southwest Africa was a very large colony. It had a significant indigenous population, probably about 200,000 people when the Germans arrived in the 1880s. The two major groups were the Herero and the Nama. And the German colonial authorities pursued the deliberate policy of impoverishing the indigenous inhabitants. The policy was really designed to strip the Herero and the Nama both of their land and of their possessions and of their cattle in particular, in order to impoverish the people so that they would be dependent for their livelihoods upon selling their labor services to the German state and to the German white settlers in German Southwest Africa. And this had a really devastating effect upon the Herero people. And so by 1904, the Herero people were really facing an existential threat, and so they rose up against the Germans, against the settlers and the representatives of the German government in the colony. And Germany responded with terrific force during this German campaign to suppress the Herero people. Uh, one German commander, General von Trotha, pursued a deliberate policy of annihilation, of genocide directed not only against the Herero men who were doing the fighting, but also against Herero women and children. And as a result of this genocidal suppression of the Herero uprising, the Herero people were almost, not completely, but almost wiped out. We uh, estimate that approximately 60 to 80 percent of the Herero population died as a result of this genocidal policy. And the Germans instituted what really can be seen as the first totalitarian state in 20th century world history. They instituted severe policies to ensure that the Herero and the Nama would never be able to rise up again. The German government seized the remaining land and cattle of the rebelling groups. Black Africans in the colony were forced to carry passes. Any white man had the ability to stop someone and demand their pass. Their passes had to show that they were employed. Herero and Nama were prohibited after the collapse of the rebellion from living together in groups of more than 10 families. 
the German plantation owners were liberated to use corporal punishment upon Herero and Nama laborers. So the result was uh, devastating for the indigenous peoples of German Southwest Africa. Uh, wow. I've read about this before, but it's, it's still really intense to, to hear you describe it that way. Yeah. And it really shocked me to learn that the phrase, I think it's pronounced Endlosung? The Endlosung, yes. Yeah, uh, or, or the final solution, was actually first written in 1904, <clears throat> you know, not in reference to what the Nazis eventually called the Jewish question, but to what mm-hmm. the Germans were calling the native question. And that same year was also the first time the Germans used concentration camps in Africa. And can you maybe talk a bit about how these ideas developed? Yes. So some of the concepts that the National Socialists use and some of the ideas that motivated them did seem to have precedents in the German colonial period. So, for example, the use of concentration camps to house the Herero and the Nama people, of course, seems to foreshadow the use of concentration camps in 1930s and 1940s. The concentration camps in German Southwest Africa were not just places to hold the Herero and the Nama, but they were also sites of mass death. Conditions were so horrific in these camps that the death rate on average was about 40%. And some of the camps, like the notorious camp on Shark Island off the coast of German Southwest Africa, about 70% of the people who were imprisoned in those camps died of malnourishment and maltreatment, and the government were fully aware of this. So there's essentially foreshadowing in German Southwest Africa of some of the policies that National Socialists carry out the use of concentration camps as really a method to annihilate a population of people purposefully through malnourishment and maltreatment. But one of the criticisms that has been made of that idea is the reality that when you're talking about the Holocaust, the German policies were motivated above all by a genocidal logic and that that was inherent to the project and in fact that is what the Holocaust was all about. It was all about the complete annihilation and removal of the Jewish population of Europe. Whereas genocides that took place in colonial contexts, they were not the purpose of European and German colonizing efforts. However, in the early 1900s, you did in fact have colonial propagandists, thinkers about colonialism, pro-colonial ideologues talking about genocide. And the term that was used by these pro-colonialists in the early 20th century was the term Endkampf, which means final war. Now, of course, the National Socialists had their own idea of an Endkampf, a racial struggle that would result in the annihilation of one race and the elevation of another. But this idea of Endkampf was discussed in German circles as early as 1904, where some German colonial thinkers and writers were speaking actively about a future final battle between blacks and whites. Huh. So were there other parts of the Nazis' ideology that that came from this period? So um, one of the terms that 
the National Socialists used quite a bit was this idea of Lebensraum, this idea of living space, uh, this notion that the National Socialists and the Germans and the Aryan people needed to acquire more living space in Central Eastern and Eastern Europe in order to survive as a people, as a race. And this idea, this term, in fact, Lebensraum, which was so central to National Socialist ideology, it did have its origins in connection with German colonialism. While Germany was actively conquering and colonizing and moving into foreign territories abroad, it helped really to provide a scientific justification for what the Germans were actually doing in places like Africa for expanding and conquering and settling, moving into new territories. And that same idea uh, heavily influenced the National Socialists later on. It became part of the National Socialist imperialist ideology, but they applied it not in places like Africa. They applied it in places like Central Eastern Europe and Eastern Europe. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the German colonies, there are concentration camps there's a notion of, of a final solution of living space, and this is almost 40 years before the Holocaust. Um, can you talk about some of the ways or, or, or the practical examples of how this colonial violence filtered back into Europe? How did it change German culture and politics? How did these ideas and these actions impact the national discourse? Well, in the main, I think the German experiences in Africa, but also in other colonial spaces, had the effect of mainstreaming certain ideas for the German public, in particular the idea of race, uh, the idea that humanity is divided up into different groups defined by meaningful biological differences, that some groups are superior and other groups are inferior, and it's biological differences that determine the places of different groups on a racial hierarchy. Uh, the idea of race war, the idea of living and dying races, uh, all of these notions in the late 19th century and the early 20th century were controversial, but they became increasingly mainstreamed into the German public as the German colonies became interwoven in various ways into daily life, even among people who had no personal contact with the reality of German colonialism. As the colonies were being debated by German politicians, as they were being discussed in the German parliament, as they were being written about in German magazines and German newspapers, as German libraries were being filled with the memoirs of soldiers who fought in the Herero and Nama uprisings. In all of these various ways, uh, Germans became exposed to certain ideas that probably would have remained very much on the fringes of German society. And the mainstreaming of these ideas provides sort of the ideological backdrop for national socialism and for certain national socialist policies that come to fruition later on, beginning in the late 1930s. So you wrote in the book that this also helped the rise of, of modern anti-Semitism in Germany. How does this all relate to anti-Semitism? So the Jews of Europe had experienced severe prejudice and discrimination for you know, many hundreds of years. But until the 19th century, the Jews of Europe 
tended to be seen by their Christian neighbors and by the people around them outside their community as members of a religious group. But in the 19th century, you have the rise of a new pseudoscience of race. You have the rise of scientific racism. And these ideas about race, they started to be applied towards Jews by anti-Semites. A number of the new anti-Semitic political parties that formed in the late 19th century were openly racist. They espoused not religious anti-Semitism, but racial anti-Semitism. They argued that the Jews in Germany and Jews in general represented a race apart from so-called Aryan Germans. And these anti-Semitic political parties, almost all of them were extremely supportive of the idea of German colonialism. They believed that Germany would benefit economically. But there was an additional reason, and that had to do with their racist ideology. They saw a happy confirmation in what was going on in German Africa of their own belief in the existence of superior and inferior races and the necessity to create legal systems and policies to codify the racial hierarchy in law. The creation of so-called native law policies prohibiting interracial marriages in the German colonies is something that German anti-Semites were paying a lot of attention to back in Germany and argued that what was happening in the colony should, in fact, be imposed in Germany vis-a-vis Jews. And that did end up happening in Germany with the creation of the Nuremberg Laws under the Nazis. Uh, How closely did the Nuremberg Laws resemble the racist legal structure the Germans used in Africa? Well, in some ways, it was quite similar. The Third Reich in the 1930s, stripped Jews of their citizenship rights and subjected them to rules and regulations and punishments that other Germans were exempt from. And the Third Reich, of course, also instituted a system of segregation. And this, in fact, closely resembled what happened in the German colonies uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Non-white indigenous colonial subjects in German Africa were denied the constitutional protections enjoyed by white German citizens. One of the facts that really leaps out is that in the German colonies, uh, interracial marriage was prohibited in the early 1900s. And of course, interfaith marriages were prohibited through national socialists who operated according to the idea that Jews were in fact a race apart. But you also had the creation of something known as native law. So these were rules and regulations that were devised by German colonial officials on the ground, which subjected indigenous colonial subjects to special rules and punishments that, of course, white German citizens were not subjected to. And you can actually see in the anti-Semitic newspapers and magazines anti-Semitic writers and politicians and journalists talking about passage of so-called anti-miscegenation laws in a very admiring way and implying sometimes quite explicitly that the same sort of thing needed to happen at home in Germany vis-a-vis Jews. So there were strong uh, similarities. Yeah, I I found it interesting uh, reading the book because you wrote about how you know, while German colonialism had this long-term impact of strengthening German anti-Semitism, 
that in the short term essentially offered a way to assimilate more deeply into German society. How widespread would you say Jewish involvement in colonialism was at that time? Well, the answer is that we don't actually know, and that study has not been done yet. But what we can say is that a number of Germans of Jewish descent were remarkably active and prominent in the history of German colonialism. The German colonies were only around for about 34 years, but for a fairly substantial part of that time, men of Jewish descent were in fact heading Germany's colonial policies. There were some Jewish soldiers who were involved in the German suppression of the Herero uprising. And on top of this, there was a small Jewish community of settlers in German Southwest Africa. Uh, in addition, German Zionists in Germany were, in fact, quite interested in what was going on in German colonies, and they were very aware of what was happening, and they wrote about and talked about German colonial expansion approvingly. Yeah, what, what exactly was the nature of the writing on that? Well, German Zionists were quite interested in the idea of colonization, of course. Uh, Zionists who argued that Jews needed to find a home outside of Europe were quite interested in seeing how Europeans during the age of imperialism were conquering and colonizing spaces abroad. And so some German Zionists were actually part of the German colonial society, which was the most important pro-colonial organization in Germany during the Kaiserreich. I want to talk just a bit more about this legacy of Jewish involvement in, in German colonialism and in genocide. Uh, some people think that these actors deserve a, a, a special condemnation for their role. Do you think that's appropriate here? I think the answer really has to be no, because to answer yes means holding German Jews and Germans of Jewish descent to a different standard and to a higher standard than their non-Jewish German compatriots uh, in terms of an ability to perceive the inherent injustice of colonialism and also an ability to anticipate the future of Europe. And that, of course, wouldn't be fair. So I think the answer is no. But there's a caveat, and, and the caveat, of course, is that it's disconcerting uh, whenever you see a member of a persecuted minority group participate in or, or actually lead discriminatory and racist policies against other minorities. You know, think, for example, and we're going to bring Trump into this finally. You know, he had to come up at some point. Think of Stephen Miller, right, in the White House, the top advisor to Trump, who is probably more responsible than anyone else uh, for crafting Donald Trump's anti-immigrant policies. Stephen Miller is Jewish. He comes from a, a strong Jewish background, and, and seeing that uh, is especially distressing. Definitely. Uh, and, and I think that one of, of many factors that enables the Stephen Millers or, or the Jared Kushners of the world uh, is looking away from these histories. And in looking back at this history, something I've been thinking through is, you know, the British had concentration camps in Africa too, and Belgium killed 10 million people in the Congo. So why, why do you think those countries didn't see similar regimes crop up to the Nazis or, or similar domestic atrocities to the Holocaust? Right. The most important difference between the German experiences of colonialism and the experiences of other European powers, Britain and France in particular, 
is the fact that the German colonial experience ended quite suddenly and quite abruptly. The Germans were stripped of their colonies all at once quite suddenly in 1919 as a result of losing the First World War. And so the German pro-colonial public really had a sense of injustice as a result of this loss. And in the years immediately after the end of the First World War, France uses troops from French-controlled Africa to occupy part of the Rhineland from 1919 to 1924. You have tens of thousands of black troops under French command occupying an important part of Germany. And this was very significant because within a matter of just a few years, the Germans go from being white colonial masters lording it over non-white colonial subjects in Africa and in other places to having black African soldiers in the streets of German cities and towns representing an occupying power, giving commands, patrolling. Many Germans did in fact see this as a type of reverse colonization, which just added to the humiliation of the loss of the war and all the other stipulations of the Treaty of Versailles. So bringing things more into the present moment, um, unfortunately, we're having to grapple quite a bit with an upsurge of anti-Semitism and fascism today. And uh, I'm wondering what the main lessons are that you hope people take from your work. One is that the story of German Jews really needs to be fully integrated into the broader story of German history. Sometimes the story of German Jews and the history of German Jews is told separately from the broader story of German history. And I think that one of the things that my work shows is that these two things must be integrated. Uh, the second thing, the second lesson that I think comes out of my work is the need to contextualize modern anti-Semitism. The need to recognize that modern anti-Semitism in Central Europe and Germany in particular, the rise of anti-Semitic political parties in the late 19th century takes place in the context of colonial empire building and the creation of racial states abroad, which means that anti-Semitism is contextual, far from being eternal and unchanging. Anti-Semitism is and always has been very much shaped by what's going on around it. Those are, from my standpoint, some of the most important takeaways from the research that I've done. Well, Christian, we, we both learned a lot reading the book. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to us about it. Well, well I really enjoyed this conversation, and I appreciate you uh, letting me on. This is Jonah Elaine Daniel calling from the Narrowbridge Candles Chandlery on southern Pomo land, North Sonoma County, California. 
Narrowbridge Candles is a Jewish ritual candle making project in support of the full Palestinian call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and donating a portion of sales to movements and organizations supporting Palestinian self-determination and U.S.-based struggles for indigenous sovereignty and racial justice. Narrowbridge Candles was spared from fire, California wildfires this season, and we're working hard making beeswax, Hanukkah candles, and filling winter ritual boxes. We also have new fabulous ceramic Judaica this year made by David Roswell. We have a Havdalah ritual kit and gorgeous Hanukkiahs. If you're in Canada, I'd recommend placing your order today and we will get things out to you as fast as we can. If you're in the U.S., you have a little more time, but ordering as soon as possible is helpful. You can place your orders on the website, narrowbridgecandles.org slash Hanukkah, H-A-N-U-K-K-A-H. Thanks so much. My name is uh, Roland Kashina Robinson. A lot of people who know me through my writings or through speaking events in Southern Ontario over the years might know me by my other name, Anamaki, which is my Menominee name, because I'm a member of the Menominee Nation of Wisconsin. We're a native community in the United States. I've been involved in left-wing and decolonial politics of some variant or another since I was in high school. Um, I currently live in the Gadu Nagana territory. Uh, sometimes that's translated into English as the dish with one spoon territory. It's the traditional territory of the Adirondran people, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wyandot. And specifically, I live in Kitchener Waterloo as part of that territory. Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to be talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So. We wanted to talk to you about your essay, Fascism and Anti-Fascism, A Decolonial Perspective. Both of us read it a few years ago and, and really appreciated it. And in the last few months, we found ourselves talking about it a little bit more. Yeah. You know, we've sort of been exploring the part of fascism that is colonialism or imperialism overseas turned inward. And it just left us with a lot of questions about our context here. What do you think it means to talk about fascism here in, in a way that's different from in Europe? You know... When you think of this idea of fascism as imperialist violence making its return to the motherland, you kind of draw these images of, you know, what the Germans did in Namibia and Southwest Africa, right? And that's over there. And then the violence and the techniques of violence come home. But in a settler colony like the United States or Canada, the home is always already the site of the violence. It's not so much that the violence is coming home. The, the violence has always been here. So America and Canada were born out of the frontier and out of genocidal violence. Germany, Britain, France, Italy, etc. were not. Of course, there were many colonial genocides, but you can speak in, you know, hypothetically of England or Germany or Italy without the necessity of genocide or enslavement. Perhaps they wouldn't be the... Uh, top global capitalist powerhouses that they became 
because of colonialism and because of genocide. But you cannot separate the question of America and Canada from the question of genocide. So the way I sometimes think about it is it's maybe not so much a return from violence that was visited on other people coming home, but violences that the settlers visited upon other people internally within their borders, like indigenous people or black people, is now being repurposed to dominate them through the emergence of various strands of far-rightist thought. Maybe sometimes it's at queer people, sometimes it's at women, sometimes it's at non-white people. I think that's the difference is for the Germans, for the English, etc., where they were off in the colony, whereas in America, it was next door. But also, it's a question of the basis of the society, right? The basis of American and Canadian society is genocide and is enslavement. Uh, something that you've spoken about that I found really interesting was the idea of fascism never quite having the same popular hold here in the way that it did in Europe. Can you talk a bit about that? Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, well, my thinking on that uh, largely kind of emerges from some stuff that Jay Sakai wrote. He thought that fascism didn't quite have the same sort of popular appeal in the United States. And I think we can simply extrapolate that to Canada as well, because settlerism, the specific ideology of the settler occupies a lot of psychic, social, cultural sort of space that fascism wants to insert itself into. And, and settlerism, because of its association with settler colonialism, tends to involve a lot of celebration of the violences of the conquest and of what people tend to call the frontier. So I think a lot of American culture is infused with that the drive for territorial expansion, the drive for settlement, and with all of the horrific violences that the fascists have, is already inscribed in the regime of settlerism, because settlerism is itself already an ideology of violent, dispossessive, genocidal territorial expansion. So Roland, if that's the case, why do you think or how do you understand the uptick of far-right groups and fascist groups in North America right now? Right. Well, I think there's a couple of factors that go into it. But, you know, we, so we've had this movement now towards this neoliberal globalized capitalism, which has disintegrated the, the industrial base. Primary production has been shifted overseas, mostly to the global periphery. Labor is increasingly gigified, it's non-unionized, it's precarious, there's a lot less stability and security, you know, less hope of like actually being able to retire on anything. But under the Obama government, even then, so before we're even talking about Trump, there was already a huge growth of militia groups, uh, other far-right organizations, because a lot of white Americans saw the election of a black man undoing what America was, you know, was no longer polite to say that America was a white nation, but that still didn't mean that a lot of white people didn't feel it that way. And so first you have Obama and you have the economic crisis and the advance of civil and human rights. And I think all these different instances create a ground where 
white cis het American and Canadian men feel like now they're under attack. Their jobs are gone. So they want something that's going to bring back what they think is rightfully theirs. So they sort of see the settler project as having failed to some degree and fascism stepping in to, to take on that role. Yeah. And to reassert the violence and to reassert the settler self, that's the fascist program. So a portion of your essay is titled, what does fascism mean to the indigenous person? And for folks who haven't read your essay, and I highly encourage them to go do so, can you talk a little bit about what conclusions you came to at that point, and if your thinking has changed in the last few years since it came out? Well, I can tell you that my thinking has not really altered all of that much. Um, the conclusions that I drew were that because of the nature of the U.S. and Canada as settler colonies, settler colonial liberal democracy is always already genocidal because the settler colony doesn't just eliminate indigenous people as a historical event in the past, but necessarily has to drive towards the elimination of indigenous people today. It's not necessarily, you know, open frontier homicide the way it was in the past, but you have regimes like the American regime of blood quantum eliminating indigenous people as a distinct population. Canada has its own programs, for example, the Indian Act. Uh, the Canadian state takes indigenous kids away still, practically as soon as they're born sometimes, right? There's more indigenous children in care today in Canada than there ever were in the residential school system. Uh, and there are other systems that go on with Métis and Inuit people. Our territories and our sovereignties represent sort of prior and alternative sovereignties to the settler sovereignty. And so we have to be eliminated. We have to be eliminated today. Our rights have to be circumscribed. So that's what I mean when I say that colonial liberal democracy is genocide necessarily. It can't be anything but that. The promise of fascism, though, is an acceleration of that program. Maybe fascism more openly returns to sterilization of indigenous women, which Canada was still doing. But maybe it happens more openly. Maybe it happens at a faster rate. Maybe fascism kills people. Maybe fascism herds people more onto reservations and reserves, right? So I think fascism is a potentiality for the rate of violence to increase not just government programs of elimination, but actual physical violence inflicted on people with the purpose of exterminating them. So it ends up just becoming a choice, though, between slow genocide or fast genocide. Neither one is preferable, but one of them is worse. And I think the atmosphere of things as they've changed since 2016 in the United States, and that necessarily bleeds north into Canada, has enabled an environment where violence is much more likely to actually happen. And so to really combat fascism, you have to openly assert both programmatically and in action anti-colonialism. So you 
right about the fact that there are many segments on the left that have failed to make this connection. Can you talk about what you see as some of the failures of the left vis-a-vis anti-fascism? Well, I think there's been a historically broad tendency to ignore the colonial question or when they do pay attention to it, it's generally sort of waved at with rhetorical gestures. For example, you know, you can do a survey of left-wing Canadian and American organizations, programs for the revolution trademark, where they will say things like, oh, we support the self-determination of indigenous people, but their programs never go any deeper than that. You know, in America, they'll talk about, like, you know, supporting a right to self-determination up to and including independence for, say, the Chicano Nation and the American Southwest or Hawaii or Puerto Rico and explicitly state those territories with their peoples can separate if they want to, but are simultaneously unclear with just some sort of vague support for self-determination for indigenous peoples elsewhere on the continent because they concede those distant areas or border areas and still contain or rather maintain control of most of the continent. You know, it gets really ridiculous in Canada where a lot of groups in their programs, they'll do the same thing where they have like, you know, a vague support for indigenous self-determination, but will simultaneously have an explicit support for the right of Quebec to separate. And that's even more ridiculous up here in Canada because Quebec itself is a settler colonial entity. It just happens to speak French and to lose out in the colonial war to Britain. Quebec only exists as a French-speaking territory because they colonized, dispossessed, and eliminated the Mohawk and the Algonquin and the Cree and the Inuit and the Abenaki and the Mi'kmaq and a whole host of other indigenous nations. And decolonization from an indigenous perspective necessarily requires the undoing of settler colonial nation states, uh, the U.S., Canada, and Quebec, if we are to treat Quebec as something different. I don't think that decolonization can have those states survive. And uh, Marxists in particular tend to want to simply create a United Socialist States of America or a Federal Workers Republic of Canada or whatever they might want to call it. Maybe they want to merge the two of them together. But I think radically they can't deal with the question of land return. So I think in general, this has resulted in a leftist failure to understand settler colonialism. A lot of them will talk about settler colonialism as something that happened in the past and which has unfortunate legacies that live on to today. I think a lot of the left, if I'm being really cynical, effectively just wants to give indigenous people more control over the reservation and maybe make the reservation bigger, you know? Um, And I think a lot of the left really wants to just occlude that issue. So you actually end your essay with an appeal to the left, uh, specifically to white people. Um, why, Why did you decide to end it that way? Well, I decided to end on that note because I know a lot of white people are also freaked out about fascism. 
And if they want to oppose it, if they want to genuinely get to the roots of fascism and to uh, deal with it, then I think they should throw their lot in with anti-colonial, uh, decolonial, and abolitionist struggle. It's sort of like a plea to, you know, if you actually really want to deal with this, then you should come on this ride with us. You know, generally we know that talking about abolishing whiteness does not mean white genocide or whatever sort of conspiracy theory. We understand that whiteness is a system of power that advantages certain people, and we understand that that should go. We should understand that revolution, uh, serious social change, means that whiteness can't persist. But in the failure to understand settler colonialism, uh, there's a failure to understand the settler as a social position. A similar thing, as a need to abolish a structural position. But people think when we talk about abolishing the settler that we mean that we're going to come and like start chopping people's heads off or something. It activates all of these fears. So I sometimes say that it ends up becoming the horseshoe where the white right and the white left start to meet in that you get all this sort of like left-wing reaction from anarchists, from other people who believe that decolonization means the establishment of indigenous ethno-states, as if we're going to ethnically cleanse the territory of white people or something. I think it was Malcolm X that referred to the white man's guilt complex. They know what they've done to the world, and they expect that to be visited back upon them. And so I think that's where a lot of it comes from, like psychologically. But you can't talk about a future without settler colonialism and still have settlers, right? It's part of the abolition of oppressive social conditions. So I think the left has to really deal with that. That is an ideal place to end this conversation on, Roland. Um, I just want to thank you so much for chatting with us today. Okay, no problem. Thanks for having me on. All right. So we just heard from the Trafe podcast. And again, you can find that at T-R-E-Y-F podcast. I learned a lot from those conversations. And we're going to take a bit of a music break and then we'll be back with a little bit more. Um, Yeah. So please do stay tuned and we'll be back in a bit. Here's some more Santana.
And welcome back to the weekly review. We are going to wrap up the show very shortly. I wanted to do a, an advertisement of sorts for the upcoming the Howard's Inn Book Fair 2019, which is happening on Sunday, December 8th at City College of San Francisco at the Mission Campus, 1125 Valencia Street. I'm going to read a little bit about what will be happening. I highly recommend folks check it out. I've been in the past. Lots of great stuff to learn. People, good things, books, etc. A lot of cool things. Okay, so for the... Okay. I'm going to turn my ringer off. And... So if you go to howardzinbookfair.com, you can find the information that I'm about to read there. And I will share some here. Strike, Discovering Our Power, Howard's Inn Book Fair 2019, Sunday, December 8th, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., City College of San Francisco, Mission Campus, 1125 Valencia, $5 suggested donation, no one turned away for lack of funds. The theme of this year's book fair is Strike, Discovering Our Power. We selected this theme to celebrate the ways in which everyday people discover their ability to work together. Inspired by the wave of strikes across the United States in the past year, the massive general strikes in India, and the recent uprisings in Algeria and Sudan, we expand the idea of the strike to include all of the ways people can take collective action to preserve their homes, protect life on Earth, respect indigeneity, shut down the machinery that produces racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and inequality, and build movements that are strong enough to last. The strike is not only about withdrawing our labor, but about redirecting it to create a better world. Featuring over 60 publishers, booksellers, and grassroots organizations, dozens of author readings, panels, and workshops with Sylvia Federici, Jane McAlevey, and Apologies if I mispronounce people's names. Emery Douglas, Alice Bagg, Bhaskar Sankora, Nicholas Baum III, Eric Drucker, Shauna Potter, Charlie Jane Anders, and Voices from the Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong, the Yellow Vest Movement in France, the Oakland Teacher Strike, and more. The Howard's Inn Book Fair is an annual celebration of people's history, past, present, and future. We gather together authors, zinesters, bloggers, and publishers for a day of readings, panel discussions, and workshops, exploring the value of dissident histories towards building a better future. In the spirit of the late historian Howard Zinn, we recognize the stories of the ways that everyday people have risen to propose a world beyond empires, big and small. The Howard Zinn Book Fair is a non-sectarian left event that welcomes a wide variety of political traditions, left traditions. And there's a place here where you can donate if you're able. And they also suggest, uh, they say, we are in the midst of a climate crisis. We strongly encourage the use of public transportation, cycling, and walking to the Howard's and Book Fair. The campus is a short walk from the 24th Street BART station and Muni Lines 14, 33, 48, 49, and J. And they also have the list here of the program. So I thought I could share that too, because we do have time here and I haven't spoken too much today as I am getting my thoughts together and they have the venue page. Okay. So I'm going to go through the, the program details here and they have the venue page, which has a room map and they say, please note session details are subject to change. We will do our best to make any updates as soon as they are known. Room 106, more power, better jobs, less work. From 10.30 a.m. to 12 noon, Jamie McCallum, Jane McAlvey, Amy Gray Schlink. And then there's a break from noon to 12.30. And then the politics of punk. Ooh. Um, 
from 12.30 p.m. to 2 p.m., Alice Bag, Michelle Gonzalez, Shauna Potter, John Avalos, and James Tracy, moderator. I Wow, that sounds really cool. There's a break from 2 p.m. to 2.15. Next is, ooh, Sylvia Federici on Witches, the Commons, Reclaiming the Body, and Discovering Our Power. That's from 2.15 to 3.45. Then there's a break. And then honoring Fred Hampton on the 50th anniversary of his murder. That's from 4 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. And that's with Emery Douglas and Jeff Hawes. And as with many book fairs and conferences and things of that nature, oftentimes there will be many awesome things happening at once, and it can be difficult to choose. Uh, So uh, just recognizing that. Room 154, Yellow Vests, One Year Later, Workers' Struggles in France Today. And that's from 10.30 a.m. to noon. That's Camille Chachou and Jean Laurent, and there's a break at noon. Next, Mobilizing Veterans Against Trump. Mm. That's 12.30 p.m. to 2 p.m., and that's with Suzanne Gordon, Ian Hoffman, and Paul Cox. There's a break from 2 to 2.15. Next, Advertising Shits in Your Head, Strategies for Resistance. That's from 2.15 to 3.45 with Vivian Raoul and John Law. Then there's a break from 3.45 to 4. Next up, Solidarity with Hong Kong, a left perspective on why we should support the 2019 uh, anti-extradition protests. And that's with Ao Lun Yu, Kevin Lin, and Wawa. Next, Room 211, Women's Work, Gender, Labor, and Capitalism. That's 10.30 a.m. to noon with Erica West, Jessica Hansen-Weaver. There's a break from noon to 12.30. Next, Abortion is our right to strike. The U.S. birth strike against the patriarchy. Ooh, and an app supporting global access to safe abortion information. That's from 1230 to 2 with Jenny Brown, Sarah Shannon, Ali Leahy, Madhavi Kutanur, and Lori Berenson. Then there's a break. Next, United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation, and Post-Truth America, and what we can do about it. Wow. All of these look really cool. Ah, I want to go to all of them. With Mickey Huff and Nolan Higdon. Neck, there's a break, and then uh, from 4 to 5.30, Sex and the Left with Norma Gallegos, Louis Finzel, Audrey Crescenti, and Gia Isabella. Next, room 213. Again, didn't I mention that like many of these awesome things are happening at the same time? My, my advice is to go with folks, invite friends, and then you all check out different ones, and then you can share information afterwards. Room 213, Teaching Resistance, Radicals, Revolutionaries, and Cultural Subversives in the Classroom. That's 1230 to noon with Alice Bag, Yvette Falarka, Michelle Cruz-Gonzalez, Jessica Mills, Miriam Klein-Stahl, John Mink, Frankie Mastrangelo, Khadija Means, Lindsay McLeary, Sarah Orton, and Ruth Crossman. And there's a break. And then Imagining the Future, Writing Liberation. And that's 826 staff member and young authors. And there's a break. And then Inspiration and Perspiration, Words Backed Up by Action by Writers of Color. And that's from 215 to 345 with Avachka, excuse me, Avachka, Kim Shuck, Tongo Elson Martin, Kevin Madrigal, Shizu Siegel. And then there's a break. And then a poor people-led revolution, building, manifesting, and fighting for land. Resources and reparations with poverty, scholar-led theory, art, words, and tears. And that's from 4 to 5.30. And that's with uh, Lisa Tiny Gray Garcia. And that's not all. There's there's even more. Room 214. A celebration of the words of Mumia Abu-Jamal from 10.30 a.m. to noon with Stephen Vittoria and recording from Mumia Abu-Jamal. Then there's a break. 
Next from 1230 to 2 is Trump and Money, From Status to Contract and From Contract to Deal. And that's with George Cafensis and Delio Vasquez. And next is Break and then Strike, the, a musical slide performance by Eric Drucker. And that's from 1215 to 345. Then there's a break. And then Legacies of Howard's Inn from 4 to 530 with Kathy Emery, Lester Bruins, and James San Bonmatsu. Next, Room 215, Strike the Military Perspectives from Dissenting Veterans ooh, and Strategies for Grassroots Divestment from War. I'm really interested in this. That's 12, uh, excuse me, 10.30 a.m. To, to noon with Rosa Del Duca, Shiloh Emeline, Oliver Valenzuela Natel, Eddie Falcon, Eric Sinamaya, Brian Perez Wences. And then there's a break. And then Imperialism, Anti-Imperialism, and International Socialist Solidarity Today from 1230 to 2 with Ashley Smith, Frida Afari, Emma Wild, Bata, Linda Kwikiewicz. Then there's a break, and then Angry Women Rise Up, Channeling Anger into Action from 2.15 to 3.45 with Danny Burleson, Michelle Gonzalez, um, Ariel Clark, Christine No, Ariel Erskine, Laurel Saxena. Then there's a break, and then Fat, Pretty, and Soon to Be Old, Redirecting Resources from the Beauty Project, and that's with Kimberly Dark from 4 to 5.30. Next, Room 229, Asian American Writings on the TWLF Strikes at SFSU and UC Berkeley from 10.30 a.m. to noon. Harvey Dong, Jeff Mori, Juanita Tamayo Lott, and Russell Young, Russell Jung, excuse me. Then there's a break, then a, a strike against the U.S. historical narrative in Indigenous Peoples' History of the United States for Young People from 1230 to 2 with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Debbie Rees, Jean Mendoza. Then there's a break. Then there's a Socialist Manifesto from 215 to 345 with uh, Bhaskar Sunkara and additional speakers to be announced. Then there's a break. And there's a fight for Oakland schools from 4 to 530 with Saru Jayaraman, Kati Adams, Tim Marshall, and Sarah Gowdy. And then room 319, Fighting for Justice in California's Fields. 10.30 a.m. to noon, Gabriel Thompson, Esmeralda Zendayas, Rose, Rosalba Lopez. Then there's a break. Then Parenting in the Resistance with Dan Errol, Jessica Mills, and Danny Burleson. That's from 12.30 to 2. And then there's an, yes. And then there's a break, 2 to 2.15. Dock worker strikes in Durban, San Francisco, Bay Area, and beyond from 2.15 to 3.45 with Peter Cole, Charmaine Chua, and Stacey Rogers. Next, there's a break. And then strikes, class struggle, and choke points from 4 to 5.30 with Emmanuel Ness, Gifford Hartman, and Robert Ovetz. Next, 3.21, how indigenous movements decolonized history in Bolivia. That's with Ben Dangle. And that's from 10.30 to noon. Then there's a break. Indigenous communities struggle for autonomy in education. That's from 1230 to 2. Sudia Paloma McCaleb, Alestra Menendez, and Kurt K. Kwahiwi. Next, there's a break. And then it's the politics of solidarity and indigenous struggles for land and justice, 215 to 345. Gabriela, Palestinian Youth Movement, Chiapas Support Committee, Sexta Grietas del Norte, Mesopotamia Solidarity Committee. And there's a break. And then Peoples Resist Empire in Latin America, a year in review from 4 to 5.30 with Alice Loiza, Alicia Dropko, David Paul, Maria Robinson, Marilyn Langlois, and Roger Harris. And there's more. I 
would have, I should have read this in advance. I will say that. There's a lot here. Okay. Room 320. The downsizing and corporatization ooh, of City College of San Francisco. That's from 10.30 a.m. to noon with Madeline Mueller, Edgar Torres, and Rick Baum. Then there's a break. Transportation and the left. What is democratic socialist mobility from 12.30 to 2? That's with Jason Henderson and Kafui um, Ablod Ato. And then there's a break. And then Salido, Salida, crossing borders with youth refugees from Central America. That's from 2.15 to 3.45 with Stephen Mayers, Jonathan Friedman, Soledad Castillo, and Gabriel Mendez. And then there's a break. And then fighting for asylum in the time of Trump. That's from 4 to 5.30 with Adrian Aaron, Hedy from Anton. The room 322, the novel as counter history, how fiction can serve truth by departing from fact. Interesting. Oh, I, I am already finding myself in a conundrum. I want to go to all of these and there many of them are at the same time. Okay. So yes, the, no, the novel, excuse me, the novel as counter history, how fiction can serve truth by departing from fact, 10 30 AM to noon, Stephen Mayers and Ben Costival. Then there's a break. Then revolutionary dreams, feminist speculative visions for the future from 1230 to two. That's with Debbie Notkin and Mark Sorderstrom and Charlie Jane Anders and Liz Henry. Then there's a break. Then, Socialists You Should Know About, Eugene V. Debs and Martin Monoff. And that's with David Walters and Nathaniel Flaken. And there's a break. Then, On AIDS, Activism, and Estrangement, Sex, and Solidarity with Benjamin Shepard and Jim Matulski. That's from 4 to 5.30. Next, Room 325, Love with Accountability, Digging Up the Roots of Child Sexual Abuse. And that is from 10.30 a.m. to noon with Aisha Shaida Simmons, Rosa Cabrera, Cecilia Falls and Thea Matthews. Then there's a break. Next, striking for a people's Green New Deal. That's from 1232. Alex Morrison, Jennifer Marley, Dina Gillow Whitaker, and Marsha Ishi Edman. Next is a break. And then reparations for slavery, the historical case. That is from 215 to 345 with Catherine Frankie and Nicholas Baum the third. Then there's a break. And then working. Class Heroes, A History of Struggle and Song with Matt Callahan and Yvonne Moore. That's from 4 to 530. And there's more. Room 314, Poetry by Any Means Necessary. What is revolutionary poetry and why is it crucial? That's from 1030 a.m. to noon with the Revolutionary Poets Brigade. Then there's a break. And that is the last of it. So, wow, there is a whole lot. I want to go to many of these. Again, you can check out howardsandbookfair.com, and that has all of the information that I just read. And wow, there's so much going on. And I believe there's also, let me go back to this page. They also have exhibitors and see what that brings us. So just publishers and booksellers who are going to be there, 1741 Press, AK Press, Belerium Books, Bookcast LSF, Bound Together Bookstore, City Lights Publishers, Cornell University Press, Dogyard Books, Dog Section Press, Eastwind Books of Berkeley, Fernwood Press, Freedom Socialist Party, Red Letter Press, Haymarket Books, International Publishers, Jacobin, Luna's Press Books, Pluto Press, Manic D Press, Microcosm Publishing, Pokino Press, PM Press, The Green Arcade, The New Press, Tony Ryan Books, The University of California Press, Verso Books, Weavers Press, and Right Words Press. And then there's also community groups and organizations, 34 Trinity, American Federation of Teachers, 2121, Anthropology Department, 
from the Center for Integral Studies, CCEGL, Chiapas Support Committee, Crime Think, Denise Sullivan, Kelly DeSaint, and Ben Terrell, uh, DSA, Food Not Bombs International, Gay Shame, and LGA. L-A-G-A-I, Global Women's Strike, IWW, John O'Connell High School, Judah Mogu Art, Just Seeds, Labor Support Committee, Mark Martin Arts, Mount Diablo, Rising Tide, National Writers Union at Northern California Chapter, Pesticide Action Network, Prisoners Literature Project, Red Nation, Renounce War Projects, Revolutionary Poets Brigade, Revolutionary United Front slash Red Star, Science for the People, Slingshot Collective, Socialist Rifle Association, the Bay Area Chapter, Speak Out, Sunrise Movement, Task Force on the Americas, Tenant and Neighborhood Councils, Vitamin Inc., Voice of Witness, WISR. Yeah. So there are a lot of great things happening. Wow. Okay. Got about 20 minutes left of the program. I think I'm probably going to take a break and catch my breath. I'll play a little bit more Santana here, and that'll probably be it. And then we'll be back again live on December 13th. I do want to say thank you so much for tuning in. And please do recommend this to a friend if you know someone who might be interested in this type of podcast. Also, volunteer my time to do this and looking to raise funds to cover the dues for the station. Um, thanks to the folks who I think who do um, chip in. And if you would like to be one who is able to anywhere from a dollar a month and up would be greatly appreciated. You can check out our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Thanks so much. And I think that's going to be it for me for now. So I'm just going to be playing some music and uh, then we will be back and next week. Cool. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll be back again next week as I uh, mentioned. All right, cool. Have a great week, everybody.